turn with me in the scriptures to the book of Genesis and to the fourth chapter. Genesis chapter 4. We're going to read the first 16 verses. Genesis chapter 4. We're going to read from verse 1 down to the end of verse 16. Genesis 4 then and verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the first fruits of his flock, And of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. And away from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Amen. Let's just pray again before we come to God's word. Lord, we do delight in your word. And we ask that you would speak to us through and by it this evening. We come in need of your spirit to Guide us and help us. And we ask your blessing on us as we do this. Speak to us. We have not come to hear Ben Lowry's thoughts on Genesis, th- on Genesis 4. We have come to hear the word of the living God. Speak to us then we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now I remember one particular day when we used to live in Scotland... And it was just one of those days where things seemed to go from bad to worse. We needed to go shopping and, and Susie had had to go into Edinburgh 
Uh, and the plan was that, that I'd pick her up from the station uh, and then we'd go to the local Tesco. We didn't want to be out all evening, we just wanted to get home and relax. No, no great plans, but that was it. The first problem was that Susie's train didn't stop at the right station. It went, I think, two or three stops further down the line. So I had to drive to the station and pick her up. Half an hour's delay or something like that, not a, not a huge problem, but... But then the next problem was, that because I hadn't been to the station before, I got lost. I was driving around and she was waiting and finally I managed to pick her up. Maybe an hour's delay by that point again, you know, one of those things. By this point, you know, we were a little bit over schedule, it was getting quite late and because we were in a bit of a rush, I said, well, I'll, you just pop in and get the things we need, I'll go and fill up the car. And um, as I went to fill up the car, in my haste, I put petrol into our diesel engine. Um, things had gone from bad to worse. What had ended up with, you know, half an hour, then an hour's delay, suddenly became a four or five hour delay where we had to wait for something to come out and pump the stuff out of the car and all the rest of it. Well, in the grand scheme of things, a minor blip, you might say. An inconvenient afternoon, evening, but relatively inconsequential. But here in Genesis, we find a similar pattern. But here it is much more serious. In the previous chapter to this one, in Genesis 3, we have the fall of man. Adam and Eve sin, and they cast out of the Garden of Eden, cast away from the presence of God in that sense. And as a result, they will die, and all of their descendants, ultimately. But then... That wasn't bad enough. As we come into chapter 4, we find the full consequences of sin. As things go from bad to worse in chapter 4 and then beyond in the book of Genesis. We learn in these chapters through the example of Cain of the first murder. A downward spiral. In the book of Genesis generally and certainly in this chapter. Well, I want us to look at some stages in this spiral this evening. Things going from bad to worse. First of all, we're looking at four things. First of all, we'll look at from empty worship to rejection. Secondly, we'll look at from resentment to murder. Then from God to nod. And then fourthly and finally, from Abel to Christ. Not a spiral anymore at that point, but let's look at these four points. Then, First of all then, from empty worship to rejection. First problem that we see with Cain is to do with his worship. Let me just read again verses 3 to 4. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the first fruits of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was angry and his face fell. At a certain point, both Cain and Abel came to offer sacrifices to the Lord. But only Cain, but only Abel, sorry, was accepted. Don't know quite how this was shown. Maybe the fire descended and consumed Abel's, but for Cain's, nothing happened with it. But whatever it was, it became clear that while Abel's offering had been accepted, Cain's had been rejected. And various reasons have been proposed as to why this was. One fairly common and popular one 
is that Cain's sacrifice was rejected because it did not involve blood. It was not a blood offering. And that has some plausibility. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, we read. And that principle was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus and his death on the cross, of course. But nonetheless, I would suggest that it's unlikely that that is the issue at stake here in Genesis 4. Because though it is true that there needed to be blood offerings in the Old Testament period, not all sacrifices at that time were blood offerings. Alongside that system were a a series of bloodless offerings also. There could be offerings of grain and such things. Read about them in Leviticus, Leviticus 2, for example. And perhaps more significantly, the word that's used here of this offering is used of that kind of offering in Leviticus 2. So it seems unlikely that that's the issue here. This was a a legal offering. But what was the reason then for Cain's rejection? Well, I think our text gives it to us. You just read verses 3 and 4 again. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. These additional details that we find in the description about Abel's offering appear to be the key bit. He was sacrificing the firstborn. He was sacrificing the fat portions. And to somebody who would have been hearing this, Hebrew speaker, and to us as well maybe, these are really code for that Abel was bringing the best. Abel was bringing the best that he had. And he was offering that to the Lord. When we compare that with Cain, we see a difference. Cain simply brought some of the fruit of the ground. No mention of that here. No mention of it being the first fruits. The best. The idea that's being portrayed is that Abel scrupulously and sacrificially offered to the Lord the best that he had. But that Cain was approaching God with a sort of anything will do mentality. Gave him the stuff that he he didn't need. The leftover stuff. And the inevitable result was that he was rejected. What do you make of that? We don't put sacrifices on altars now, do we? But when we come to God with an anything will do mentality, we're doing the same thing that Cain was doing. I wonder how you approach God. Do you give him the worst time of your day? Just fitting him in. You should never sacrifice anything to spend time with God in in prayer, reading the scriptures. It is easy to do when you're busy, I know. What do you do with the Lord's day? Come to church when you can fit it in. Just morning, just evening, I don't know. It's the Lord's day. It's the, the day is given to him. He comes first. Or is he just tagged on when and if you can find room for him? Do you only serve God when you get something out of it? Or when it's not inconvenient? Or are you willing to sacrifice? What's your financial support of the church like? I don't know. Give to God first when you get your paycheck in. Is that, that tithe, that 10%, the first thing set aside for the Lord? More if you can afford it. But we give Him what's left over after we've spent it on the takeaways and all the rest of the things that we want. Can you imagine a husband who 
comes back from work one day and he says to his wife, well, I've got, got your present here. And um, then he hands her a tin of Quality Street chocolates. You know, she's quite pleased, she likes Quality Street. And um, then he opens it though and she realises that, that he's just given her like the ones he didn't want. You know, the coconut ones or something like that. What would that be saying about his feelings for her? That's his idea of a, a loving gesture. Giving her the things that he didn't want. Paul speaks, doesn't he, Romans 12, about how we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Is this you or does God just get the scraps? Does he just get what's left over? The bits of your life that you didn't want anyway. Because if we do this, then that is not an offering which is pleasing to God. What will that mean? Well, if God really is the bottom of your list of priorities, then you do need to ask, are you a Christian? Even if you claim it. Perhaps you do comply outwardly. But it's with a spirit of resentment. You wouldn't be far from Cain here. At this stage in his life, if you looked at Cain, you would have seen a a devout worshipper of the Lord. He was doing the right things. He was bringing his offering. That's why he's so confused here, isn't he? I've done what you wanted, he thinks. I've complied, haven't I? Is that you? Trying to comply with some outward set of norms about what needs to be done? Well, Cain's suffering was rejected. Is your worship rejected? Is it just an outward thing? Even if maybe you are truly a Christian. If this is your... Anything approaching this is your relationship to God. Then your relationship with God will be impaired. It will suffer. It cannot but suffer. Is that you here this evening? Well, that's the first thing. First stage in the spiral from empty worship to rejection... Secondly, from resentment to murder. Because what's Cain's response to this rejection? Look at verse 5. When Cain and his offering, but for, sorry, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. This is the Lord. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Cain's angry. And at this point he receives a warning from God. Verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. Here, sin is is personified. Perhaps looking back to Genesis 3 with the the serpent who tempted Eve. Here we have a warning. Sin is crouching at the door. Desire is for you. The image of a creature. That's the serpent hiding in the entrance. Either it will conform Cain to its will or Cain will rule it. And this is a striking and accurate depiction of sin. And it's sin that's the enemy. Now, yes, there is such a thing as demonic temptation, but, but James speaks, doesn't he, about how each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. It's sin which is the ultimate enemy. If you do not rule it, then it will rule you. 
Cain has begun by feeling anger, you know, perhaps initially against God, but then against his brother Abel as well. Not, rather than looking to his own actions for the reason for his rejection. In envy, he simply hates his brother for having something that he doesn't have. Cain doesn't realize the seriousness of his situation. God warns him of where he is. But Cain thinks that he's got it in control. Doesn't take the advice. And then we read in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel. And killed him. Cain thought he had it sorted. He thought he had it under control. But sin overpowered him. And he ends up overpowering his brother. Shedding his innocent blood. In the field. Is that you here this evening? Is there some sin? And you're dipping your toes in it. Just, you know, you think it's all right. It doesn't seem that, doesn't seem that cold after all. You know that you're not going to fall in. You know you've got it under control. Perhaps you fancy that some low-level anger, laziness, envy, lust, gossip, slander, backbiting, perhaps it's not going to do any harm. Everyone does it anyway, you know. Well, under control, you say. No, says God. It desires you if you invite it in, if you, you make it into your pet, make it part of your life. You're not going to control it. It will rule over you and it will make you its slave. I've already mentioned the image here. It, it echoes the, the serpent in, in Genesis 7. If you found a poisonous snake in your garden, you know, a escaped black mamba, let's say. What would you do? Well, you'd get your children, your family, everybody, and just keep them as far away from the thing as you could until somebody could come and capture the thing and get rid of it. You wouldn't, you know, bring it into the house, would you? And let your children play with it, put it in the bed next to you. Pat its head. Not unless you've got a death wish. Well, that's what sin is like. It's a serpent waiting at the door, ready to pounce. You can't control it. You can't make it into a pet. Does this frighten you? It should do. Let no one here rest believing that you can dabble with sin. You can do it safely and it'll all be okay and... and Believe me that that dabbling itself is enough to send you to hell for eternity. He who commits the sin is the servant of sin though. It won't end with the dabbling. Your soul is at stake here. If you're not a Christian, don't believe the lie that a life of sin is in fact a life of freedom. It's not. It's a life of slavery. It's being captive to something else. Something which is, does not have your good at its heart. Your destruction. And if you'd say you're a Christian here this evening, don't rest in the fact that you're a Christian. The Bible warns even those who stand to take care lest they fall. Where are you on this? Are you lustful? 
As you walk down the street, you see the advertisements everywhere. All your eyes out on stalks as you're seeing everything. Looking at pornography or any image that you find that cause you to lust. Are you a backbiter? You feel good about the pride you get from running other people down behind their back? Are you full of resentment and anger? Allowing something to gnaw at you from something somebody said or did years ago? I don't know. You could go on and on. There's some common things. But these things will enslave you. It may feel good or you think it does in the moment. But it will destroy you. Cain doesn't check it here. Father, it overflows and he ends up murdering his brother. 1 John 2.12 says he murdered his brother because his own deeds were evil. And his brother's righteous. He hated Abel. Because he couldn't bear the rejection of his own sacrifice while Abel's was accepted. But he also refused to accept God's advice. God's advice that he needed to look to his position. Will you do that this evening? Will you realize the seriousness of sin? Will you realize that it isn't something you can control? But it's something that will overflow and which will destroy you. Which ultimately will end in you being damned to hell. If you will not turn from it. Well, we've had from empty worship to rejection. We've had from resentment to murder. But now, thirdly, from God to nod. Because here comes the real tragedy. The essential element comes up in verses 10 to 12. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Here we have an idea which comes up elsewhere in the Bible as well. This idea of of blood guilt. The idea that when blood which is innocent is unjustly shed. That it in some sense calls up to heaven for justice. The Bible teaches that Taking a human life is something so heinous that the blood does cry out even. Something which our materialist age, I think, doesn't have any category for. But creation is so created for justice that when it is not done, the very creation itself cries out. But then, as we go on, as a result of the blood crying from the ground, Cain is cursed from the ground. That's what you read in verse 11, isn't it? Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. At least part of what that means is that he can no longer remain in the place where he was. And we see the the spiral of sin here. God had had cursed the ground for Adam's sake. We read that in in the previous chapter. But this is an intensification of that. Now the ground itself curses Cain. And what that means ultimately, the outworking of that is seen in verse 16. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. and Settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Adam went eastward out of the garden. That's implied by the fact that when he was sent out, the cherubim was set 
at the, at the east of Eden. That's the way Adam had gone, and so that was where the God was to stop him coming back. And that signified banishment from the immediate presence of God. And this banishment becomes even clearer with Cain, because he goes further east again. Settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And explicitly now, and here from the presence of the Lord. These sacrifices in this dispute with Abel, this was already in the realm of the curse. This was already east of Eden. But Cain, by his sin, is driven even further east. Even further from the presence of God. And this is a key catastrophe that comes from sin. The key catastrophe whence all the other problems flow. That sin takes us from the presence of God. Because sin cannot be in the presence of God. Because of God's holiness, as soon as Adam and Eve fell, they had to leave. They couldn't remain in the presence of God. And as mankind spirals further into sin, in Cain, he quite literally goes even further away from God. I want to ask you here today, are you far from God? Has your sin driven you from God? You're not a Christian here this evening, then you are far from God. Maybe you are a Christian, but you're living in some sinful way. Know this, that it will inevitably drive you from the Lord. Language here is that of banishment, isn't it? And that's a helpful way to think about it. We, we don't have a, a punishment. We call banishment anymore, not in this country. But we do actually, nonetheless, do something similar. It's been a high-profile case, hasn't there? That's been recently appealed in the, in the courts. The case of Shamima Begum. That young lady who the age of 15, left the UK to, to join ISIS, and who has then had her citizenship revoked. And that's essentially, she's been banished. And that will have awful consequences for her. Unable to return to the land of her birth, to the friends she had, to her parents. Can you imagine being in that situation? There are probably scarcely any punishments and penalties that could be worse. But actually, if only we knew it, that is nothing compared to what it means to be banished from the presence of God. What made the Garden of Eden paradise wasn't the fact that it had the greatest rivers and the greatest fruit and all the rest of it. It was the fact that that was the place where mankind met with God, walked with God, had fellowship with Him. And that's gone. departed the fellowship ruined broken your death is in some ways analogous to this isn't it many of us have, have lost loved ones I can think of my dad he's in heaven now think of a, a little baby that we had who was never born and what I would do to restore those, that fellowship that's been lost Put it back in place. Where you can think of similar people in your own life. We're in that situation with God. We've died to him. 
Separated from him, that primal fellowship was lost. If you've never known fellowship with God, you've never known what, what it is that you have lost. But it's more important, strange to say, than any of these other relationships that we lose. Than any of these other things. For every heart and being was created for God. Created for fellowship with Him. There is no peace and joy aside from knowing Him. That's what the purpose of life is. As the catechism puts it, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Sin drives us away from God. Do you realize that? Well, we've spoken of the spiral, haven't we? Empty worship to rejection, resentment to murder, from God to nod, east, banished from God's presence. Now, fourthly and finally, I want us to end on this note of hope as we think about from Abel to Christ. Because even here with Cain, there is mercy. You see that strangely here, even for the world's first murderer. I'm not trying to suggest here that Cain repented. I think the overall structure of the book of Genesis would indicate the opposite. However, God did have mercy on Cain here. And that like Adam and Eve before him, Cain was not killed for his sin. Remember that God had said, in the day that Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. And in a sense, of course, Adam did die. His fellowship with God ceased. Spiritually he died. And indeed, from that day on, he began to die physically as well. However, God could have rightly obliterated Adam and the entire human race at that point. But while he could have done that, in his mercy he did not. Adam was permitted to continue. We find a similar mercy here. It seems that Cain realizes that, that justice is going to be done to him. That if anyone finds him, that they will kill him. That's what he says in verse 14 there, isn't it? I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer, and whoever finds me will kill me. No, God does speak of the death penalty for murder as just. He instituted it with Noah, then he instituted it in the Mosaic law as well. Yet here, God in this instance decides to have mercy upon Cain. To protect him. To protect him against judgment from other human beings. And God sets this unspecified mark upon him to the effect that vengeance, if Cain is killed, will not be a life for a life. But will in fact be seven lives for his. Presumably something that, that God himself would exact. Now this is a long way away from final mercy. Ultimately Cain died and he was judged by God. And the only indication the Bible gives is that Cain was ultimately condemned. Because his brother Abel's blood did cry out for justice. God's nature, his just nature cries out against the wickedness of Cain's sin. We do find a hint of God's character of mercy even in his dealings here with Cain and it finds its full outworking in the rest of the Bible let me just turn to 
to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. Hebrews 12, 24. Here we, we have the epistle speaking of, of how we come to, to the spiritual, the heavenly Mount Zion. The city of the living God and so on. But one of the things we've come to, look at verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because the blood of Abel does not have the last word. Abel's blood, innocent blood shed unjustly, cried out to God for vengeance, for judgments against Cain. And all shed blood does this, except for that of one man. All blood cries out for judgment except that of one man, the truly innocent one. The one who had never known sin, and yet who was crucified, put to death as a sinner, indeed as a criminal. The Lord Jesus Christ. The crucifixion of Jesus was the greatest crime that has ever been committed. When the almighty God came down and became one of us. What did we do? Rather than falling down in worship to the one who even then, according to his divine nature, was upholding the world by the word of his power. Instead of falling down before him, what did we do? We took him. With wicked hands, put him to death. And yet the all justice would imply that at this death, the blood should cry out even stronger for vengeance. It does not. Because Christ went to the cross willingly, having come to the world for this very very purpose, to die the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And he said to God, and he says it still, except my death, instead of the deaths of those who have sinned, instead of the deaths even of those, some of them who are Crucifying me, instead of the dead, instead of those who are leaving me and deserting me, forsaking me, instead of that Peter who even now has just vilely denied me in my hour of need. So that his blood does indeed speak better things than that of Abel. It speaks peace to men and to women. It speaks of justice finally answered unanswerably. What do you do with this? You have partaken of the goodness of God unworthily as Cain did here. God's preservation of this very world is an act of his mercy and grace. By rights he could have sent Cain straight to hell and he could have sent you straight to hell as well. But this temporary respite will not last. Each of us shall give an account as Cain has already done. Know this, that there is shed blood which calls for mercy if you will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Where are you on this? And if you will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then what happened to Cain can be reversed. You, like Cain, are far from God. You're east of Eden. But can be brought back. Brought back to the presence of God. We spoke earlier, didn't we, about those we've lost. 
And as we miss them, we do long to see them again, don't we? The the Christians, then their presence in heaven makes the idea of heaven even sweeter to us, doesn't it? Opportunity to restore a fellowship that's broken. But actually, as we've said, there's a greater fellowship. The fellowship between God and man broken at the fall. The fellowship regained by Christ at the cross. If you will come to him, if you will draw near to God, if you will plead Christ's death on the cross and run to God, then he will receive you. You will know what it is to have eternal fellowship with the one for whom you were made. You are searching for something this evening, I don't know, but that's what it is, even if you don't know it. Unless we close, what will you do with this? You've spoken of God's judgment for sin. You've spoken of the danger of sin. You've spoken of the fact that it will ultimately end in banishment from the presence of God. But we've also spoken of the sacrifice that Jesus has provided, of the blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. Would you trust in him this evening?